Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is a podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to have in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. And that's all there is to it. My guest in this episode is the comedian Callie Beaton. Callie is one of the UK's most sought-after comedians. It was while working for Comedy Central that Carrie was nudged into the sphere of performance after a chance conversation with the late great Joan Rivers, then aged 81. And so it was that at 45 years old, a single parent, Callie first took to the stage. She quickly cemented her position as one of the most exciting and original new stand-ups in the country with her unflinching, acerbic and clever brand of comedy. Her television appearances to date include being a regular panellist on BBC Two's QI and The Apprentice You're Fired, as well as featuring on Live at the Apollo, Pointless Celebrities, Richard Osman's House of Games and The Blame Game. She's popular with BBC Radio 4 audiences, where her appearances include The Now Show, The Unbelievable Truth, Saturday Live and Museum of Curiosity. She's also a regular contributor on Radio 5 Live, Times Radio and BBC London. Busy woman, but then Callie has held senior management positions at some of the biggest media companies in the world. She set up an award-winning creative consultancy company, Road Trip Media, and went on to do a 10-year stint as senior vice president of the US studio giant Viacom CBS. You know, they say it at the end of most television programs, Viacom. Anyway, it was there that Callie oversaw a multi-million dollar budget for brands including Nickelodeon, MTV, Comedy Central and Paramount. 
If you want someone to blame for bringing South Park and SpongeBob SquarePants to the world, you need look no further than Callie Beaton. In 2021, Callie launched Namaste, Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. Callie has written for The Guardian and The Financial Times and is one of the country's most highly regarded keynote and after-dinner speakers and an experienced and accomplished awards host. Very typically, Callie, within a few moments of our conversation starting, after the statutory hellos and how are you's, launched straight into her view of humankind. So, let's hear what she thinks of most of us, before she tells us the five things that she'd choose to put in her time capsule. Here is, you lucky people, Callie Beaton. Most people are good, aren't they? I take that through life, that I think I have an overwhelming feeling, which I've inherited from my father, Mm. a sort of optimistic worldview and I do think most people the kindness of strangers and I think the if you're open the huge majority of people are wonderful yeah and for every person who stands out for not being there there are so many millions more who are Mm. and I always think if you go through life thinking the opposite it must be a very depressing Mm. way to Uh, exist must be awful to see everybody as an enemy I think. Yeah, I just think God, it must be so exhausting to think everybody's stupid or a problem or out to get you or if they yeah. say something to you, there's a nasty motive. I think what a, what a heavy way to go through your life. Whereas, in fact, most people are not even thinking about you. That's the, That's the good thing to know. Only we are at the centre of our universe. Yeah, absolutely. You're <laughs> fairly irrelevant to most yes. people. Even in this household, I'm irrelevant to most people. So. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind in the world. No. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to launch straight in and find out what the first thing is that you want to put in a time capsule. Brilliant. Well, I've done them sort of in a sort of chronological way. I thought Mm. of things that meant things through the stages of my life, which, as you know, are a few decades now. So I thought I would start from a childhood thing. And Mm. it is not just a childhood thing, but it is something that is also connected with someone else's childhood. So I used to play the piano. That was my absolute passion from when I was tiny so my parents are both very musical and my we had a piano, just a sort of, not, not a fancy one, but an upright piano when we were growing up. And uh, my mum in particular would play. And I sort of learned to read music at a very similar time to learning to read words. So I didn't really think about the fact that that was a privilege and a lovely thing. Mm. And so I, I remember sitting playing the piano when I was absolutely tiny. And then it became my absolute sort of passion when I went to a boys boarding school where my parents (laughs) taught and I used it as a way of not having to really talk with the boys outside of classroom. So it'd be a thing I did in spare time so that Mm. I wasn't having to do whatever, I don't know what else I'd have been doing in that environment. So I became a decent pianist and there's a book of um, music that I have a very sort of dog-eared book that I actually got from my mother's younger brother. Mike was a musician um, a professional musician, and it's his actual copy from when he was at um, the Royal Academy of Music. And it's Dr. Gradus Ad Parnassum, which is in Debussy's Children's Corner, which is a compilation of six pieces that Debussy wrote inspired by his little daughter. Oh, and he lovely. wrote it in 2006 when I think she was three. And it's this beautiful suite of six pieces. And the first of them is Dr. Gradus Ad Parnassum. So it would be that specific edition of that specific suite of music of Debussy's. Yes, dog-eared from his use. Very much dog-eared. The cover's fallen off numerous times. Brown, faded sellotape on the spine. (laughs) My daughter also ended up using it when she learnt the piano and she learnt to play that piece from that, also from that same book of music. 
So it's the most treasured physical piece of music and actually probably one of the most treasured pieces of music to listen to that I've had in my life. So Mike was a pianist as well, was he? Yes. So Mike was, um, I have a brother, Mike, and my mum had a brother, Mike. And my mum's brother, Mike, was um, actually ended up being a, um, a, a very acclaimed conductor over in Canada. He moved to Toronto after he studied music over here. So primarily made his living out of being a conductor, but as many conductors are, would then sit at the piano and play at virtuoso level mm. without thinking that was his particular skill. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, you can tell I'm a late night uh, performer, can't you? My throat's always well. We're recording <laughs> this in the morning, which is a very unusual thing for me yeah. to be doing. Um, so yeah, so he's musical. My dad um, reinvented from being a teacher to being a timpanist in his 40s, so did a similar thing to what I've done into comedy. <laughs> so my dad still, he's 79, he sings and he and he plays timpani. And my mother is a very talented musician, um, used to sing at a pretty uh, high level and did, hasn't really carried it on beyond the fact she's got a huge knowledge of and appreciation of music. Mm. So we've got sort of music all around um, on both sides of the family. Yeah. And I was lucky enough that it sort of seeped into my life and actually Alistair McGowan who I'm sure you know mm. he just came on my podcast it's about to come out next week it may have come out by the time this this goes out mm -hmm. and as you'll know he's made his passion the last 10 years playing the piano and has become very accomplished as a pianist and he set me down a challenge when we were talking um, because we bonded over our love of the piano when, <laughs> when we met and he set me down a challenge to be good enough in a year to take piano lessons and get back up to snuff so I can play Dr. Gradus at his lovely piano festival next May. Oh, how brilliant. So there's a living challenge that yeah. may or may not end up happening, but it felt like a massive gift that he then plopped into my life at a point when I thought, actually, what a lovely thing to perhaps start to do again. Yeah. So the piano is very present for me at the moment, Michael, and I think that would be a nice thing to think about preserving oh beautiful yes so i think and i've always thought this because there are so few notes in music that actually it would be really easy to teach children to read music at the same time as you teach them to read words words are complicated there are lots and lots of them whereas music is fairly straightforward isn't it it's that thing, isn't it, where things are simple until they're not. So when you're little, you're not questioning it. You're not going, oh, this looks weird. Mm. You're, you're just sort of, it's just what you know. A bit like bringing up children with other languages. It's just what yeah. they know. They don't think we're learning another language. They're just like, these are my mother tongues. Mm. And I think there is something about, again, it's hard for me not to know what that was like to have that. Yeah. Although I do have massive envy for people who are much looser and just learn music by ear. Actually, my the musicians I massively admire are ones who didn't have that classical training in the same way and have done it all by ear in a very fluid. Whenever I've played in bands, I've been much the most sort of uptight one and other people are just <laughs> hearing things and playing them. So there's a disadvantage to being quite rigorously trained, but it's also what a lovely gift to grow up just being able to prattle about on the piano. And there often are, I said to the kids when they were learning instruments, they both learned the violin, which was not my idea. The school they went to, it's a state school, but they had mm -hmm. this odd legacy where this trust had been set up many years ago, which enabled every single child in the school, no matter what background, and it's a very mixed, you know, inner city school, to play the violin. So all these little children, I mean, God help us. I don't know why they didn't invest in recorders or at least banjos. <laughs> so all these children would have violins at home. So my children did play the violin, uh, not to great results uh, for a few years, but I did say to both of them, if there's an instrument, it's worth learning. The piano gives you the foundation and there very often will be a piano long before they were in train stations. 
there'll be a piano in houses or places mm -hmm. you'll go and you can just sit down and play it. Whereas if it's a guitar or drums or whatever, learn all that, but you won't just be able to spontaneously knock out a tune when you're at someone's house. So no. um, this, uh, the piano is a good foundation instrument, isn't it? And the it? reaction of people when you do that is fantastic, isn't it? There's nobody that doesn't absolutely adore people who can just sit down at the piano and play it. You need the music, but... <laughs> <laughs> I need, I mean, I can play without music, but I'll mm. have learned, to, I do it the other way around. I reverse engineer, so I learn the piece mm -hmm. with music. And then I can do it without music. But when I watch people, you know, I live in Amsterdam part of the time, so I'm lucky enough to have the Concertgebouw just on my doorstep when I'm over there. And obviously it's one of the best, you know, I mean, not that in London we don't have incredible music venues, but the Concertgebouw tends to have every brilliant pianist and musician in the world will travel through it when they're touring. And whenever I see a pianist there rattling through some of the most complex works in the world with no music, I think... It makes me feel a bit sick. I'm like, oh, I could never, <laughs> never have done that. I couldn't have played it. I certainly couldn't have done it without music. But even in a really simple form, I think. I have a very strong memory of being a boy in London. So I must have been less than eight. So I think probably about five or six. New Year's Eve, being up at midnight and just before midnight, everybody carrying the piano from somebody's house into the street. And then a man sat down and just played all those songs from the war and everybody sort of, you know, maybe it's because oh, yeah. I'm a Londoner. And he just sat there with the sort of vamping process. And I remember standing by this piano and watching this person. And then at midnight, hearing all the ships on the Thames sound their hooters. How amazing. Mm. Those moments. It is an yeah. extraordinary moment. So that admiration of the people who do that, I think, goes right back to that because I was quite fascinated by the fact that people just shouted songs out and off he'd go. A skill I never had, Michael, exactly the skill I wouldn't have had. I'm more impressed by the fact the piano was carried out because my piano that I have here in London has been moved from Amsterdam. It was a piano I bought when I lived in Amsterdam mm -hmm. and it had to be brought in. You know, those pulleys they have in Amsterdam where they, they move things into buildings with rope and pulley, whatever the name is. Yeah. Tauenblok, it's called in Dutch. And I saw my piano come into my Dutch house via the window they had to take out the slash window to bring it in. I saw it leave in that way. And then I saw it have to navigate. The bit it nearly fell apart in was this Victorian house I live in, in London, where the, the corner wasn't possible for them to bring it around. And so again, a bay window had to come out. So, having, so I'm very impressed. Anyone just wheeled the piano out into the street and were like, here you go. Yes. I had a piano for many years. I don't have one in my house anymore. I can play about five tunes and look as if I can play the piano. But I never took it any further than that. What does that say about me, that I'm happy to just bluff? That you went to a school with, which was the appropriate gender mix and were able to commune with words <laughs> rather than music. That's what it says. Yes, it was just boys and all you did was say, please don't hit me. Please, <laughs> please don't, don't hit, hit me. me. Don't make me play rugby. I'm going to sit and do my scales and play a bit of Chopin. I did, um, but it's interesting you say about not having played, you know, that you stopped playing when you were tiny. But one of the things, uh, well, one of the things I think is most important in life is us realising it's never too late and w w there's plenty of time to reinvent, learn new things. There isn't a sell-by date on that for any of us. And I've always had that as a sort of ethos, but Alistair also said to me that he got back into the piano at 49, mm. having really not played in 30-odd years or closer to 40 years. And he said that the person, I think, who, who he had this sort of lovely epiphany as to what got him back into the piano, very sort of lyrical, perfect moments. And whoever it was who was with him said 
they cited somebody who'd started the piano from scratch at 60 and by 80 was playing Greek piano concertos. And I <laughs> love that. So I think, okay, at 54, as someone who used to be able to do it, I must have it all to play for, mm. literally to play for. Have you ever listened to Horowitz's encores? I haven't, no. Right, I'm good. That's, that's a present I'm going to send you. Excellent. Can I have a present for every one of the things I put in the time capsule? <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll I've got five presents today. Five presents, thank you very much. <laughs> There's one track of it where he plays the Star Spangled Banner, and he used to play it as a piece of his encore when he came on, having played Brachmaninoff. He would play the Star Spangled Banner, and I've listened to it many times, and it, I can't work out how he can play the four individual pieces that happen at the same time. So it has all four themes being played at the same time. So one of them, he's clearly playing, or in fact, two of them, with his little finger. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Oh, well, I, that is definitely on my list of things I'm, to I'm going to send to. it to you. Thank Lovely. you. That's it. But in the meantime, we should put that sheet music into the time capsule and take great care of it. Because it's very fragile. It's already yeah. very fragile. I know how precious they are. I have some sheet music. My father was a, a singer, but he liked to sing. And he had sheet music for lots of songs that were his. And it has all his notes on it. Mine have many notes on, yes. Actually, not so much from me. A couple of pencil notes from me. Pen notes from Mike, whose book it originally was. Mm -hmm. And then um, a few little notes that my daughter's added on in pencil. So we've got three generations of notes on it. And hopefully there'll be more to come. Lovely. Okay, right. That's the first thing then, Kelly. So what's number two? Number two sort of goes on into my children now so um so this is the the only other child related one and it's got to be their baby books I think so I have my baby book here very dog-eared from I was born in 1969 and that's a very precious thing to have and my you know my little looks of hair in it and lovely mess things my parents had written and so my baby book is precious but not as precious as the ones that I did for my children so mm. my my babies were born in 1997 and 2000 so pre-digital images. Mm. Um, I think I did have a mobile phone by the time Ella was born, but I certainly wasn't one with a camera on it. So we had, as you know, to do all these memories were caught on actual camera and yeah. you had to actually get things developed. And <laughs> we were pretty good. But with my first born, we were pretty good at getting them developed, putting them into albums. Obviously, by the second born, a few less photos were taken and we <laughs> had much less capacity for the albums. But we did manage to do them each, a baby book and a first book of photos. And so I've got them all. You can see I've got a bookshelf behind me. Mm -hmm. And I've got all the other ones that never went into albums are in a fireproof box. The only thing in this entire house that's in a fireproof box is all the children's photos. Um, um, the rest can burn, um, but <laughs> but there's, hopefully nothing will burn. But that's all we've got that's protected from fire. But yes, so these lovely baby books I would keep. And it's funny how you'll know this as a father and grandfather, there are those moments in time you feel you sort of borrow the children in a way because you're giving them roots and you're giving them wings. Mm. And it's this job that if you do it well, you are entirely redundant or largely redundant at a certain point. Mm. And I sometimes get those images of a certain moment in time of the children at an exact age. And I can sort of see the little welly boots they had, the woolly tights, whatever little things they were wearing and exactly where we were. And I could almost smell it and see it. And I could almost sort of hold the children again. Mm. And there's something about that which you take in your mind with you. 
And I suppose the nearest you have to that in physical form is the little photo books that you have of them or whatever people now are doing who have babies and probably less physical books. Mm. So those books are very precious to me. I have digitalized. I'll have another go at that. I have digitalized all of those photographs. There's an app that you can get where you take a photograph and then it, it sorts it out. So I've got all those as digital photographs. But I still have the books. And in fact, it's much nicer to look through the books than through your phone or through your computer. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you can zoom in and everything on phones and stuff, which you sort of can't do on the photograph. But I'm worried that, you know, like a lot of those things, they're beginning to fade. Yes, there is. that. Although I st- when it, my dad's um, 70th, we sort of did a really comprehensive dig through of photos from when he was a baby through to recent times. And we managed to come up with some really good stuff. And, mm. and all of them, I mean, I've still got photo books from my beloved, his mum, my beloved grandmother, books of when she went to, you know, to New Zealand with her sister in 1920 and the black and white photos. So I've got piles and piles of old photo books where everything's still very much visible and I just haven't looked, I, well I partly haven't digitised um, anything because I've been a single working mum <laughs> my whole life and I just literally haven't had the bandwidth but also this I just don't know when you, it's lovely for other people to have it but I just never look through the stuff I have digitally so I kind of think well I'd have it all, I'd sort of save it all, there'd be a link to it that the kids would be passed on with the will and then what they might or I don't know, I always wonder who is foraging through archives of digital stuff. I've got stuff I don't think I'll ever look at again that I've yeah. kept but so I, I don't know. Um, there's something about the physical that's quite reassuring. Yeah, I agree. One of my favourite photographs is of a cousin of mine getting married. It's right at that moment in the early 70s when everybody was wearing enormous collars and their shirts outside of their jackets with round collars. Good times. Massive, great big ties, lots of browns and purples, ridiculous hats and platform shoes. You've just described Shoreditch today. Yeah, quite. (laughs) (laughs) But it's amazing. It looked so fashionable. And I know that they come from not a terribly wealthy family. And they weren't rich and they weren't sort of trendsetters. But it's amazing how that fashion infiltrated everywhere. Unlike, I think, the whole 60s thing, which I think was very particular. There were a particular group of people who lived the 60s and everybody Mm -hmm. else watched it. Oh, that's Mm. interesting. Mm. That's interesting. I'd never thought of it like that. Which did you do? Live it or watch it? I tried to live the 70s. I have a very, again, a strong memory of going in, finally thinking, right, I'm going to buy the platform shoes because I was fed up with girls all being so much taller than me. How and tall are you? I'm five foot eight and a half. Oh, of course you're going to put the half I in. was suddenly yeah. very honest with you there. I'm five, six and a half, and I also am insistent upon the half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, otherwise I'm only five, eight, that's tiny. It was a time everybody was wearing platform shoes. I used to perform with my father quite often on a Saturday night, so I would get there at about sort of 9.30, and they'd all had a drink, they'd all had a party, and they'd all remember to put their platform shoes on. And I still had the flat little white shoes on that I'd been wearing to perform on stage with my dad. So I was a midget, as far as they were concerned. Yes, so they had four inches on you, in a polite way. Yes, yes I'm sure they did. <laughs> <laughs> I had no success at all as a young man with girls because they were all so much taller than me and used to sort of pat me on the top of the head. Well, even now on the um, dating apps, which you will never have had the um, misfortune of having to go on, mm-hmm. it's the absolute, the bane of men's life, apparently, is if you are your height, lots of women will just say, 
you know, six foot only and above, please. And uh, and I deliberately don't do that because I think there's an equivalent for women getting ruled out on the basis of age. So we get ruled out on age, men get ruled out on height. Right. None of which should be the case. No, absolutely not. I'm, I've got a friend who's very short and he has a very tall wife and they're clearly madly in love with each other. And my mind being weird always thinks about uh, how they have sex. But then if one can have sex the other way around, as mm -hmm. in tall men and, and short women, that's been the case for a very long time. <laughs> True. I think uh, having dated widely, Michael, I can assure you everything is possible. <laughs> Everyone's got it all to play for. Really, <laughs> just detail. Never judge a book by its cover. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> May have a hidden extra four inches. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And heels for all purposes. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Okay, well, let's put those lovely baby books We've gone from sweet little innocent baby books <laughs> straight to, into the sex. Platform shoes in the bedroom. Good for us. Nothing <laughs> if not eclectic. <laughs> yep. We'll cover everything. Now, um, okay, well, that's lovely. So I would like to say for the listeners, you are now blushing. They can't see this, but I can see you've suddenly got a very you've suddenly got a very Raymond Briggs Swan Christmas look going on. I've, you've, you've relaxed me too much and you've allowed me to just let things come out of my brain without thinking about what I was going to say. And we can't even pretend it's 10 o'clock at night and we've had a drink because I've already said it's the morning and that's why my voice is husky. I so. do blush whenever the sex is mentioned, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I'm not blushing, I'd like it known. No, no. No, you look very, very confident about the whole thing, whereas I'm going, oh my God, we're talking about sex. <laughs> right, that's it. Let's move on. Let's move on to number three. Let's hope it's not so Sex. It's nothing to do with sex. It is a tight black outfit and it's shiny, but hear me out, right? Mm -hmm. It's not what it sounds like. So I used to skydive. So I did, um, like lots of people who end up skydiving, I did a charity jump, a static line parachute jump when I was in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. And I trained at Chelsea Barracks in London, which no longer exists as barracks, but I trained there for a day and a half with a friend and then we went and did our static line jump and I just got what some people do get which is the complete bug for it just was like, I just have to do this again I've always been an adrenaline junkie <laughs> and I then started doing training which is a, they call there's a couple of ways to train to be a skydiver and there's a way that's called the progression way which is where you literally have to do three jumps at a certain altitude with a static line three jumps at another you had to just basically nail each thing as you go through a progression and within about 50 jumps if you're sort of all right at it you might start to then do free fall so that obviously takes a hell of a long time especially in the UK where the weather's so bad so you're mm -hmm. waiting for the right weather so you could take years to do that there's also a thing called accelerated free fall AFF where in the space of a handful of jumps, you get a huge amount of on-the-ground training and then you get in-the-air training and your first jump is jumping out of a plane with two qualified sort of sky gods holding onto the grips on the side of your suit and you basically learn all the manoeuvres in the air mm -hmm. and you can become a qualified skydiver in a matter of just a few jumps. <laughs> so I ended up doing that and um, and doing the which I had not got the money for. I was struggling along on just over minimum wage in my first TV job. And what you need to do is, in the beginning, it's a sexist old world skydiving, where it certainly was when I was there. In every mm. way, they used to call female skydivers Dorises. You were called a Doris. <laughs> and there weren't many of us. And the kit we would have, you obviously didn't have your own kit at that stage, would be massive, great boiler suits yeah. and huge, great rigs that were like, made for Marines, <laughs> which is quite a lot harder. To, it's quite cumbersome and not as easy to do stuff. And once you become a skydiver... You have to have a suit that fits your body type. 
in order to give you the best capacity to cut through. You, you will reach terminal velocity, obviously, at, at a certain point, but you can re- you reach it at a marginally different time depending on your body weight. So you mm. see female skydivers with what's called slick suits and often weight belts. And what a slick suit is, it is a suit that is made for you that is absolutely moulded to your body so that you slice through the air as quickly as possible. So when you're doing formation skydiving, you can get to the bits where the other people are at the right sort of time. By putting weights on themselves, are they? Yes. Yeah, so it's not that you all end up, you, don't, you know, I'm not putting on four stone of weights to match a sort of a big guy that's doing it, but you're just trying to make yourself as aerodynamic as possible right. and give yourself the best chance of getting where you need to go. So the suit that I I have, I still have it. I will say this, Michael, I've not tried putting it on in a while and it was made to every curve of my body when I was 23. So who knows, who um, knows? how much use it would be to me. Although I probably am not radically, it's a bit different, not radically different, she said naively and kidding herself. <laughs> so yeah, so there's this suit anyway. And I had it, it was completely skin tight because it had to be, but with flared legs because that's the position you need for free fall. And um, it's called a slick suit and it's shiny black and it's got bright pink grips on the side, which are the bits you need on the side for formation for other people to hold on to. Mm. So it reminds me of, they say that skydivers know why the birds sing. And it reminds me of this time in my life when I was doing something that had nothing to do with status or what I did for a living and was you meet really interesting characters doing it and just travelling around the country and sometimes the world following the weather Hmm. and hoping to get up in the sky. And on a good day, there were some days where by 11 o'clock on a Sunday I'd have done five skydives and it's a beautiful sunny day and you're sitting having a coffee thinking, you know, I've been up since five and this is what I've done today. And some people are just falling out of bed and I've just done this. So it's a real privilege to do. Yeah, amazing. I've fallen through the air. Yes. For minutes. Well, not minutes. If you did it for minutes, you'd be dead. Oh, right. <laughs> so uh, you have to remember to pull your parachute. Um, How high do you go? So 15,000 feet is about the highest you would go without oxygen. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of 10,000 upwards is what, 10,000 feet upwards is what you'd be skydiving from. And then you'd get about a minute of free fall the amazing thing when you look at formation skydives, particularly the complex ones, but I mean, I never did loads of it, is that they had to do that so quickly. You have no time at all because you're crashing towards the ground, you know, 120 miles an hour. Yeah. So, yeah, so you get longer under a canopy than you do in free fall. And I actually, I always used to love the bit under a canopy the best. That was just the most magical thing. <laughs> Once your canopy's open, therefore you are most likely safe because everyone who's done it will have had one malfunction. I've had one malfunction um, oh, when you go God. into a reserve chute. So ever <sighs> after that, you're quite pleased when your chute opens. Mm. So I always used to love the canopy bit, to be fair, more than the skydiving. But the whole experience is, um, yes, I still dream about it. And I still think, will I ever do it again? Who knows? Yes, so you've, you've stopped. When did you stop? I stopped not long after that because I then ended up moving to Amsterdam. Um, I didn't, didn't sort of seek out a drop zone over there and then had kids quite young and sort of my life just went in a different direction mm-hmm. and career took off. So, yes, I stopped in my early... Tw- I did it for a couple of years, really. So probably by 25, I'd pretty much stopped. So, yeah, a couple of years in my 20s, that was my entire life revolved around skydiving. An extraordinary thing because clearly every time you pulled that cord... You thought, is this going to work? 
Well, that's why this is, I'm getting very technical now and boring. So this is what editing's for, isn't it? If you don't, if this is too boring. But the reason <laughs> static line jumps are quite a safe bet on with round parachutes is that your main parachute comes off your back. Mm. And if there's a malfunction, you fire a reserve parachute off your front. Right. So you're never getting rid of your main chute in order to have your reserve chute. So it's kind of a, a belt and braces approach. When mm. you see people under those sporty square canopies that you see, you know, when you're driving along the motorway and you see sort of people skydiving just in view, those square parachutes, if there is a malfunction, you have to cut away your main chute. I say cut away, you don't do it hopefully with a, you do have a knife in case, but you hopefully don't need to. You pull a thing and cut it away mm-hmm. and then you fire your reserve parachute. So you have to get rid of one in order to have the other. And they used to, as part of your training, make you do that as one of your jumps. And then they decided it just wasn't worth the risk that obviously there is a tiny risk. Your reserve won't fire. So why would you, as a training mechanism, make someone actually do that? Mm. So the malfunction I had was on a square parachute where I did have to cut away the main and use the reserve. And the reserves are packed to come out very quickly. So there's a slightly higher risk. They're slightly less reliable than than the main one. Oh, my God. So there's a slight peril in, uh, well, yeah, when you're on a round parachute, which is why they plucked people out of planes during the you know war with mm. round parachutes because they, they, it's a much safer, clumsy way to get people to the ground, which yeah, was yeah. the main objective. So yeah, so there you go. That's a bit of technical parachuting information you never wish to be given. <laughs> well, no, it's really interesting, I think, to discover that it takes less than a minute to fall 10,000 feet. No, it's not 10,000 feet. So you're opening your parachute well above the ground. So you're not going right, right to the ground. So you'd be falling five, six, seven thousand 7,000 feet. Then you need your parachute open at a certain point above the ground. But if you didn't, you got, what, 20 seconds before you actually do hit the ground if yes, it goes wrong? Yes, you've got no time at all at that point. If you mm-hmm. do, yes, and, and you can decide at what altitude you do it, obviously. So you could be cutting it finer or not cutting it finer. But that you also have, um, nowadays on modern rigs, they have a, I can't remember what it's called, but they have a device which if you get to a certain altitude and your parachute hasn't opened, it will automatically open it. So if you mm. got knocked unconscious on exit from the plane, your parachute would deploy at a certain point. So they do now have some whizmos and gizmos. And you have to remember not to turn that thing on until you've reached altitude, because otherwise, obviously, it's going to bomb off on the plane on the way up. <laughs> of <laughs> <So>. course. <laughs> Imagine that. So, Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Don't turn it on until you're up <laughs> where you need to be. <laughs> you have strange things happen in your life, don't you? For a while, I became really scared of flying. I don't know why. I think it was maybe to do with the fact that I felt powerless when I flew with my children and I felt that I I should be powerful. I should be able to protect them if needs be to the point where I became almost phobic about it. What got you over your fear of flying? Um, I suddenly thought this is ridiculous and made myself determined to become not scared of it. I tried to recapture the feeling I had the very first time I flew. I flew to Italy, to Rome, and I'd never been abroad at that point. I think I'd been on a day trip to France, but I'd never really been on a holiday abroad. So I was 16, I think. Yeah. And I remember taking off and staring out of the window and just being amazed by it and thrilled, really thrilled. And I tried to remember that, tried to recapture it. And it worked. I now do exactly that when I get on a plane. I get thrilled by the idea of going up. I love going through the cloud and I just stare out of the window the whole time. It's also so, um, I would recommend for anyone listening who has a phobia of flying, just talk to a pilot sometime. I dated a pilot for a bit and it is all about risk management. You think that it's going to, that it's going to be the most exciting daredevil personalities who are pilots, but I promise you, 
to the point that within about three dates, I was like, God, I thought this would be a bit more <laughs> interesting. <laughs> well, it's all about how to be safe and it yeah. is so safe. So um, have a conversation with the pilot, try mm. not to fall asleep uh, and they will tell you <laughs> how very safe it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did once sit next to a pilot on a flight back from Spain. Wasn't he supposed to be in the cockpit? No wonder you're scared. He said, said, I'm going back to see this woman. She really adores me. She finds my stories about flying really fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) But he explained what all the noises were, and that was really useful. And did you sleep well after that conversation? I slept during the flight, I think, yes. (laughs) But obviously after we'd had sex, you know. (laughs) You see, you keep doing it. Now you're blushing again of your own (laughs) mate. You're determined to blush your way through this. (laughs) Oh, God, I'm useless. (laughs) I nearly told a scurril a story about the pilot then, and I managed to edit. I was like, you're not not in a club. Don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay, well, that's for another time. But the slick suit, I think you should try it on. Yeah, I might do. I might Mm. do. I might need... um, Yes, I might need some, a few helpers to get me in or certainly get me out of it. I have to wait till my daughter's home in case I get wedged in it and have to wear it until I next see her. So Yes, but what a thrill to actually get into it. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I do a lot on TikTok, Michael, and I think it would be a good, I think that would do quite well, a 54-year-old wedged into a slick seat from her youth. I bet that's never been done before. No, no, that one's going viral. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, until you decide to try it on, I'm going to put it into the time capsule for you. Keep it safe. Thank you. And the moths um, haven't gone for it. Uh, Even the moths are like, we don't know what this is. We're (laughs) leaving it well alone. So it's moth proof. Right. So that's three things. What's number four? Okie dokie. Ad break time. Sorry for the interruption, but we'll be back in a matter of seconds. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back. If you'd rather there weren't any ads, then you can, for a very small monthly fee, subscribe to ACAST+. Plus. Details in the description of this episode. In the meantime, or even kind time, let's get back to Callie Beaton and find out what else she'd like to put in her time capsule. So number four is, well, I'm a bit torn between two things here, 
Um, I'm talking between my, I'm going to mention my dog, Jeff, but I'm not going to put him in. Okay. Because also part of having a dog is knowing you can't really keep them, isn't it? So that's part of the beauty of a dog mm -hmm. is that you have them, you adore them. And so they say, don't they, with a dog, they're just a part of your life, but you're all of theirs. Yeah. And I always think that's a nice thing to remember with a dog. So I'm just going to mention Jeff because he means the world to me. Mm. And um, But what I'm actually going to put in is something much more vacuous and self-serving than a dog, <laughs> okay. which I think tells you all you need to know about my priorities. So when I made the transition from boardroom to treading the boards, when I became a stand-up, mm. um, and obviously you don't immediately become a stand-up, you start dabbling in, in <laughs> yeah. open mic and you don't just go, oh, you know, I'm the next Sarah Millican. <laughs> and I was working uh, for Viacom, who own Comedy Central and, and MTV and, and various other brands people will know. And I used a different name as my stage name. So the reason I'm Callie is it's it's always been my pet name and my name from people who who love me, I guess, you know, family and, and partners and but it wasn't a name I used in my corporate life. I was Caroline, which is my birth name. So when I started stand-up, I called myself Callie because it was a real name, but it meant I was slightly differentiated. And mm. I kept it a secret from most people at work. But a few of my close colleagues knew. And one of them did um, my first ever headshot. She was just an amateur photographer, but did beautiful photos. So she did my first set of shots. And then for my birthday, the year I started, um, she mocked up a picture of the Apollo with me on the side. So she put one of the headshots and it said, Callie Beaton, and it was on the side of the Apollo. <laughs> and I kept it and framed it and just put it in my study. And I always knew that the, the show as somebody my age, and probably not just my age, but the show we all want to get on side at the Apollo as a stand-up. Mm. And that was what I desperately wanted to do. I didn't think it would happen starting in my kind of mid to late 40s as I did. And then when I heard I'd got live at the Apollo last autumn, I sent her a message with a screenshot of the picture saying, do you remember this? What are you doing on whatever the record date was? And she sent one back going, no, you're not, are you? And I said, I am. <laughs> and then she said, I can't believe you kept that card we gave you. And I said, yeah, I said, well, I kept it, I framed it. I said, and it meant the world to me at the time you made it for me and it means even more to me now. Mm. So there was the most beautiful symmetry of how that went. And I probably couldn't have done the stand-up without those few people who did work with me being so supportive and, and on board and lovely. I think I'd have just thought it was just too much. Mm. So um, my friend Marissa did that for me and I would keep that little photograph that's framed of me mocked up on the Apollo. Mm. How lovely. I mean, it's a very extraordinary thing to do, to be in that world. All the people I know who are in production and work for television companies, if they ever suggest to the people who actually do the jobs that they're hiring them to do. So people who are actors or people who are writers. And they say, yeah, I've, I fancy having a go at that. In everybody's head, you basically go, yeah, sure. So to actually to say that, to do that, admittedly, originally sort of quite secretively, but eventually to sort of go, well, I am doing it. It's a really brave thing to do, I think, because you were suddenly putting yourself in, in amongst all those people who saw you as an employer, and you would be performing alongside many of them, I think. Fairly quickly you did as well, didn't you? The thing you realise is, and this is a very good thing to realise, isn't it, that um, no one really cares about the trappings that we mm. could ourselves matter. So status, money, success, whatever any of that means, it's very transient. None of that stuff's ever really blown my skirt up. And what actually, really what, the world should be it should be a meritocracy and what you do in the moment should really be all you're judged on mm. and there is no purer form of that than stand up and you've never really got much in the bank 
and you've got it all to play for every single time. You're never <laughs> far from a bad gig or a gig that's not quite the gig you hoped it would be. Mm. And I remember, I find it quite discombobulating, but but much more than that, I found there were positives in it, which was no one cared that I was a single mum. No one cared what age I was. No one cared what I did for my day job. And no one cared about any of the mistakes I'd made or the victories I'd had. I was just in rooms as another person doing my best for however many minutes on stage and meeting people I would never have met that were not like the sort of your life becomes much more curated often as you get older and you're with people who are like you. Mm. And it was the opposite of that. And I remember just, I found it really difficult and on every level I found it very challenging, but completely compelling. And what a brilliant thing to learn in your late 40s when you, you might be starting to think I'm getting a bit old or I need to start limiting myself to go, oh no, I don't need to limit myself. I've literally got it all to play for. So in a way, I think it would be braver to just hunker down and go, this is it, this is life. I, I am who I am right now and mm. I'm never going to change anything. I would find that quite a frightening thing to do. So it's not about being good at it. It's about, I think Brene Brown um, talks about perfectionism being the enemy to success. Mm. And we're not looking for perfect, we're looking for mastery. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to master stand up for myself i'm not asking for the whole world to think i'm the best stand up I'll, I'll never be the best stand up the world's ever seen but i will master it relative to my capacity yeah and that's what's a lovely thing to be doing and that's not about money or fame that's about something quite personal yes and it's true that everybody has an individual style and that's if you try to not be you if you try to sort of go well what is stand up and let me look at it and copy it and and perform it that way it wouldn't work at all it has to come from you doesn't it and i love the fact that all stand-ups there are performers who are completely different in style to each other and they complement each other but they all really admire the other person yeah you have to just and you know this being in the industry we're in and we're all on different sides of the same whimsical merry-go-round aren't we and for all your time in the sun, there's a lot of time in the shade. Mm. And it's so easy to just notice the bits we're not getting or the things someone that shouldn't be getting is getting or whatever. And I think if you realise the only race you're running with these kind of creative things is, is against, well, in life, actually, it's against yourself. <laughs> and that that's a, to liberate yourself from that is, and it's easy to say that when life's going okay for me at the moment professionally, so touch wood, it'll continue. So it's easy for me to be very magnanimous and say, oh, let's just breeze along with good karma. But yes, I think it is, um, it, it is about just knowing that the only race we're running is with ourselves. Yes. I beat myself every day. It's brilliant. Yeah, you see, <laughs> I don't always. Sometimes I lose to myself. I'm like, God, how's today <laughs> worse than yesterday? Well done, you. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, how lovely, though. What a sense of foresight, though, your friend Marissa was, aren't you? Yeah, Marissa. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, I guess it literally is. Um, I don't know how much I believe in manifestation. I certainly believe that you should be open to the world mm. and live your life with possibility. You know, what if, not not no, because that definitely is how I feel about the world. And somehow I'm seeing it right now and it's something I've probably seen every single day, yeah. even subliminally. It's just been sitting in my study next to the ashes of my beloved cat, Sid. Um, and yeah, it happened. Mm. So yes, I, I've got a lot to thank her for. And to thank the people who were around me at that stage in my life for. And what was beautiful when I did the Apollo, obviously it's incredible to do it and to have it now on tape, although mm. a, a decent TikTok that goes viral will get you a lot more followers and fame than doing live at the Apollo these days. And that's yeah. a, definitely, that is a hard fact. But what was most amazing on the day was my dad and my son were both in the audience, but so were 
about 20 friends from different parts of my life, including uh. a bunch of people, Marissa included, mm. from that time in my life. So it, it also felt that that was the most moving thing about it, really, was having those people there and the time I spent with them sitting in the sun in a pub garden afterwards. Because <laughs> after it, it was a daytime record for the Christmas one. And, mm. and we don't record it at Christmas in case people are wondering why was it so sunny <laughs> that you were in a pub garden. So, yeah, that was what really mattered, wasn't it? It's having witnesses to your life matters as much as what you're doing in it. Yes. And you're absolutely right, that thing that to say, well, that's it, I've missed the boat, which you've mentioned a number of times. Can you tell I've just turned 54 and age is <laughs> top of mind? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> I've just turned 65 and that is an age that actually hit me worse than any other uh, age Did that I've it? become. Uh, Why is that? Suddenly I went, that's retirement age. I'm, a, I'm an old age pensioner. It made me stop in my tracks a bit. Even though I don't get my pension. Yeah, we wish we could ever be old age pensioners. <laughs> yeah, quite. You know, but um, it was suddenly a very strange thing. But age is, I don't know. I knew people at school who were already 65 and retired. And I know people now who are in their 70s, 80s even, who are juvenile and have a wonderful life and live life to the full. So it's what you do in life, I think, that's important. Yeah, I think if you've got also, well, I mean, doing what we do for a living, you know, there's no reason, given all the different things we can do professionally and, and have our voices heard and still be relevant. Mm. You know, podcasting is a lovely, um, you know, it's just a very sort of egalitarian field to play in, isn't it? Because if things, if, if I mean, I know that big sort of influencers and celebrities certainly can launch a hit podcast, mm. but for the rest of us, it, people will find it and start to listen to it. And we could still be doing this for another 30 years, not this exact episode. Um, not you and people I. People might get a bit. Uh, Board. <laughs> Tell me more about that sky jumping. <laughs> exactly. Let's just spin this one out to death. <laughs> it's a good publicity stunt, though, isn't it? We'll just keep a podcast going and other yes. people will keep having to step in. No one will ever listen to it. <laughs> and I'll sit here with cobwebs all over me, like Miss Havisham. <laughs> Still blushing when sex comes up, <laughs> dying for a wee. How did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put that lovely framed photograph into the time capsule. There we are. So that's four lovely things we put in. So we have one thing that you want to get rid of from your life left. So I thought quite a bit about this and we're only ever in a snapshot of where we're at with life, right? So I thought I'm going to go with something that is authentically right in the heart of what I would like to put in there today and feels very relevant. Mm. And it's hard to explain what it is. I'm going to describe it best as the spectres of boyfriend's past. But I, this is not in the way it might sound. It might sound like I'm saying I've dated horrible men and I want them all buried. And it actually isn't <laughs> that at all. What it is, is that since the age of 14, when I had my first lovely boyfriend, Nick Young, um, and was madly in love with him till I was 16, and then there on in, have had lovely, uh, usually men, some women, usually men in my life who I've fallen in love with and been with. Mm. And it's taken me until what I hope will be the second half of my life, so from when I turned 50, so I'm hoping I get roughly another 50 years at it, mm. to not allow, and this is not on the men at all, most men I've dated have been absolutely wonderful, it's allowing having a partner to become so central to my existence that they um, almost become a sort of squatter in your mind and sort of <laughs> eclipse things not always in the best way instead of a sort of healthy relationship where it's a lovely addition. They become quite sort of prevalent. So it's something to do with it having taken half my life to get to the point where I'm very, very happy in my life without a central person in it as mm. much as I would absolutely love to think I will find someone. 
So it may not make a huge amount of sense, but it's something about having let relationships and the need for them define me and wishing to now live a life that's much less dependent on that mm. and that's much more open to actually the bits that you have forever, which are your family, your friends, your job, your animals. Yes. And things that we all think about more as we get older, like nature and, and yeah, just, just things. So I suppose it's just a shift and getting those, it sounds like there've been hundreds of them, <laughs> but just filing them out in groups of 10 out of my brain. <laughs> and I don't want them to be dead and buried. I'd like them to just be off happily loved by the people they're now loved by mm -hmm. with nothing but goodwill. Occasionally remembered. Occasionally remembered, yes. yes. And, and did you find in a relationship that you were trying to please all the time? Is that an element of it? Yeah, I think there is a, it's, it's, um, well, it's a cross between being insecure and quite narcissistic, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you're sort of thinking, oh, I've got to really please somebody and keep them okay. And perhaps I'm not lovable. I think it took me until I was, you know, till recently to think, fundamentally I am lovable which is not to say I think I'm attractive and wonderful and some kind of crown jewel just that I think yeah we're all lovable mm. uh, if you if you see any of us in our raw state we're very lovable and I think there's a there's a combination isn't there of people who haven't quite made a fist of relationships like me mm. well I'm the common link so I could blame all those men and say well they're all a bit shit and I've been really <laughs> unlucky but I was the person who was there for every single one of them and, and yet here I still am on my own mm. So I think it is about um, a combination of sort of feeling a bit of a victim. There's a tendency, isn't there? Oh, I, and I just need to please and people aren't nice to me. But also realising there's quite a narcissism if you haven't managed to find the right person. Well, there's sort of ego involved as well. Some bit of you must be going, well, you know, the ones you finish it with, well, you know, you're just not good enough for me. <laughs> so I yeah. think it's about just calming the, are we allowed to swear on this? Yes, please do. Calming the fuck down mm -hmm. and just going, do you know what, we're all just, sort of similar aren't we and we're all quite messy and and, and so I think it's um it's probably a bit about parking of the ego as well and going well it, it's you know you don't have to be the most phenomenal person anyone's ever dated to be worth some things yes it's strange isn't it because some relationships you see them and it, the people clearly fit together because they adore all the same things they love wearing the same sort of clothes they love the same holidays they love the same theater they love the same music they look the same they're almost bonded into one person. And then other relationships, and I will cite my own, not with myself, but with my wife, which is that we have completely different tastes in all sorts of things. And in fact, I'm sure that the strength of it is that we go, okay, off you go then, have fun. When you describe that, it comes from the point that you both have enough self-esteem to be confident enough that as individual people you can split and then go back together and you'll be okay. And I think some relationships are founded on something a bit more codependent and a real lack of self-esteem, which means you need the validation. And perhaps that's the word I'm, the validation that perhaps I've always needed from particularly men, mm. I feel I don't need anymore. And yeah. perhaps you and the lovely Mandy are able to self-validate and have a far healthier coming together when you do. So you you basically, along with most humans, are able to just do a lovely, loving thing and make it last. <laughs> and it's also anyone listening. I didn't realise, you know, I was with my kid's father for, for you know, over a decade and, and he's still one of the most important people in my life. It's very, very amicable and blended. Mm. 
But it's an enormous achievement to find a life partner and do what you and Mandy have done and what lots of people listening have done, and especially in the times when it's no doubt really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that I, I just think I underestimated how... And you only get one crack at a sort of 40 or 50 or 60-year relationship. I certainly am not going to manage to have a 50-year relationship now. <laughs> or if I do, fair play to me and whoever the poor sod is who I do it with. <laughs> <laughs> the person you meet at the gig tonight. Exactly. Who will hopefully, if they're thirty, then they might have a crack of being with me and, and sort of yeah, wiping my ass when I'm a hundred. It'd be nice, nice for them to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. Well, on that note, uh, uh, Caroline. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting the formal name, aren't I? Yeah. Like the, I've been told off when I'm called Caroline. <laughs> Oh, how lovely to talk to you. Was that all right, It was lovely. Thank you very much. You've made me blush. You've made me laugh a lot. So, you know, I apologise if I get a bit rambling sometimes, but, you know. But that's why we do what we do for a living, right? Because we like to talk. <laughs> we like to talk, you, yeah. You were not rambling at all. You were concise and wonderful. Well, it's, just, it's interesting, though, isn't it, to discover that you also have the ability to listen. I surprise myself almost every time. Before I started doing podcasts, I would be in every opportunity like people are really i suppose but uh, suddenly now i've discovered that actually the thrill of it the thrill of going i know i've got something i could say here but let's see what else somebody else wants to say yeah they say listen to learn don't they versus listen to respond mm. which is a nice way to go through life my son learned as an autistic kid he we did lots around listening for him Lovely. and i became a bit of a better listener because of it yeah yeah yeah, I've got two autistic grandchildren and uh, it's a constant learning process for me. My granddaughter has uh, PDA, which is a pathological demand avoidance syndrome. I know a bit about that. That's a heck of a challenge it's for all tough, around. Yeah. It's a yeah. tough one. And you for know. her. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. It's mostly for her. You have to be aware that actually all the things that she's saying no to, she would like to say yes to, yeah, but can't because her brain feels that if she says yes, you've made her do it. And it makes her completely anxious. It's loss of control, isn't anxious, it? Incredibly anxious. Know? Yeah. As a girl, particularly, she's very good at masking that. So it's, it's really difficult. You know, you just have to try and love them as much as you can, I think. Yeah, and, tr- and as they say, he'd be old thing to say, but trust the process that everything is as it should be and not trying to sort of boil the ocean when we're trying to make things okay for them and just let their neurodivergence sort of play out. Yes. Because um, it's so tempting to sort of apply a neurotypical prism to it and go, well, if we can just help them be a bit more like this, mm-hmm. then they'll be okay. Mm. And it's like that's assuming that we're the ones who are okay, which in many ways we possibly aren't. No, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. What a joy. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Callie Beaton. Thank you for listening. If you have the time, then please do subscribe to this podcast so you get told when a new episode is available. Very important. And we'd really appreciate your efforts if you'd rate us and possibly leave a review, which you can do on some podcast providers like Apple on iTunes. You can follow me, my time capsule, and even, and this is new information, past the Peas Music, who wrote the theme tune, which is available to download on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast, and it was produced by John Fenton-Stevens, who edited this episode, provided the music, runs the Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts of My Time Capsule and Pass the Peas music, has provided me with two lovely grandchildren, and tells me I've done well, even when it's clearly taken him hours of work to sort out the mess I often present him with. The only fault he has, of course, is that he's a very noisy eater. 
He is. Yeah, we went to a restaurant the other night, and when he started on the soup, six couples got up to do the polka. Now, I don't know why that's funny, and, in fact, it may not be funny, except to me. So humour me. Thank you. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 